0: What is the Goofy Foot Layup? Why is free play so important to athletic development? Can basketball practices be too structured? The only question left is, say it with me, you win. Hey, sports fans, Coach Nick here, and welcome to the B-Ball Breakdown podcast. I am pleased to welcome on the show today, college basketball analyst for CBS and host of the Doug Gottlieb Show,
1: none other than Doug Gottlieb. Doug, thanks for coming on today. Coach Nick, it's uh, always my pleasure, man.
0: Hey, I always love chopping it up on on Twitter with you and sharing uh, different plays and what's going on there. Uh, It's kind of cool, actually, when you think about it, because... Uh, we haven't been able to up until vine and Twitter came out. There was, there was, you, you couldn't share these things, right? Like when we were playing back in the day, there was no way to sort of say, Hey, check this play out.
1: Yeah. It's kind of amazing. Um, the ability to see a play and then kind of discuss what just happened. And I think, you know, like, look, you do a great job obviously of clipping it and binding it and, and like starting a discussion about what happened. And it's funny, um, uh, a couple of buddies of mine, actually a buddy of mine who um, uh, I played with in high school and he played at St. Mary's, uh, and anyway, he, he started this expression where he calls people who don't kind of understand basketball, like they're fans of it, but they don't really know it. They call them civilians, right? <laughs> and so now like all my buddies who are athletes, former athletes or, or coaches, um, they talk about how hard, it, how hard it is to watch a game with civilians. And then, you know, what happens in social media is like you'll tweet something out and what you and I see or what basketball people see is sometimes completely different from what the average fan sees. Like they're so drawn to the ball, they don't see all the other things, which is kind of the beauty to the game, like five chess pieces on the board and how everything reacts. And uh, so, yeah, I think it's, in, it's an amazing positive use of social media that so often what we get stuck on is the trolls or the negatives of uh, the social media landscape. Whereas I think um, sharing plays and sharing knowledge and discussing the actual beauty and interesting parts of a sport is kind of, the best part of the social media experience.
0: Right. Well, let's not forget though, that plenty of people will, will show the negative, uh, the bad defense and the things, guys getting lost as well. Uh, which also is part of what you're talking about. Cause people might not notice. I caught, uh, um, who was it last night? Oh, yeah, Draymond, who was playing pretty well defensively, but I caught him just, like, sleeping on the three that they got in the corner on the help and one pass away. And it was like those things where, you know, you're probably wa- yeah, you're watching the ball, you're watching the kick down, you're watching the guy shoot it, but meanwhile, right in front of you, you might not even see it. And, uh, and yeah, that's, that's sort of what I've been able to, you know, do. I feel like the reason why I, I, people resonate with what I'm doing is because it sort of flies in the face of what you hear a lot of on the traditional analysis of the game whereas a lot of times I'm like no that doesn't sound quite right uh and when I do my video breakdowns I usually try and poke some holes into what we're seeing as the, as the sort of
1: the the normal media analysis uh it i, I think it depends I think I, I caution you to not fall in the trap of don't assume that's normal I, I think I I understand exactly what you're saying. And I do think there are guys that point out the obvious and when they point out the obvious, they actually make a mistake. You know, it's, it's, let's, let's take the Draymond play. You're talking about Um, like you will never, you should never help off a shooter in that situation on the strong side. Like that's not his job. Um, And, and maybe to somebody who grew up playing basketball in the seventies or eighties or early nineties, maybe they dispute that. Maybe the idea was help and recover. But again, and, and I think we're talking about the same play. There's a big guy there in help, and if you're going to make uh, who was, if you're going to make Tony Parker make that pass, he's got to make the pass all the way under the basket and hook it around to the corner. You got to make him make the furthest pass away. Um, so I, I agree with you that there is a lack of true kind of basketball analysis. I'll also tell you that having been in that seat. Um, you can't break down every play, you can't uh, point out the finer points of every play, uh, but I also think you're right in that not everybody, even the guys that were great players, see the game the way a coach sees a game, a point guard sees a game, or somebody who sees the whole floor and understands the concepts that should be taught uh, in 2016 basketball are being taught. So. I I'm, I'm going to agree with you, but disagree with you in terms of the idea that that's how everybody does it. Um, the guys that it, it's look, there's people in football who they're still analyzing a game. Like it's the, the 1990s or the early 21st century. We have the ability now to break down plays into, to teach people. And it's also important Nick, that you don't lecture people. You know, you don't, you don't want to be that guy. Who's like, you know, I know everything about the sport. It's, it's, <laughs> Uh, it, 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 it's, it's showing you something that, um, you saw the shot go in. Let me show you why the shot was a good shot and where the breakdown was. And it's also understanding that, and this is a really hard thing for TV executives is that like, look, basketball people, football people, baseball people, we all see thing. We all see the exact same thing. Like it, it's not negative to say that, Draymond screwed up in the play, right? But the way sports has been covered for a long time, you just say like, oh, what a shot, you know? Whereas like, yeah, well, what a stupid play by a smart player in Draymond Green. You never leave the help side strong open corner. You make a make, but like, that's how my dad always watched tape. That's how every coach I ever played for watched tape, like who's who screwed up on this play. Mm-hmm. But it's hard for people who are sometimes executives or even fans to understand that negative feedback Uh, is the, is sports feedback, right? And they're so used to dotting their eyes with hearts that they don't want you to point out that Draymond screwed up. Instead, they want to point out that Kawhi got the open three in the corner. I don't know I don't know if that makes, makes sense. For sure,
0: for sure. And by the way, don't ruin my fun on Twitter. <laughs> I love being able to be snarky. But I think the reason why I can do that, and I fully acknowledge, I don't even like to go to the games usually because I want to be able to jump back 10 seconds and see it again. There's no – I can't see – I don't think I would have seen Draymond just sort of falling asleep there if I hadn't gone back a couple of times and said, what happened there? So, yeah, I mean I'm sitting in a seat where I get a chance to do a lot more uh, – uh, I could see a lot more than anybody could, even at the court side, or even if you're in you know, a little higher at a better vantage point. So, without question. But what you bring up you as know, far as, uh, oh, go ahead.
1: Well, I was going to say is uh, there is something there in what you're talking about. Like, I've long thought, and uh, a couple of my, my best friends in the industry have long thought that there is a way, you know, ESPN has done this with the Football National Championship where they have the round table of guys talking about the game that's being played and they're showing the film and they go back to, and they're like commenting on the game, uh, but not calling the game, you know, like they'll, they'll do it on a, on a different network. And I've always thought that basketball, like there's, there's a missing element to it that you could have a bunch of guys in a studio with all the TV capability and, yeah, they're running a little bit behind, but they're talking about what's happening and they're questioning the coaching moves that are taking place, which is what we do on Twitter, which is that everybody does at home. And that, that's actually how I challenge myself when I'm doing a broadcast. And it's funny, um, if, a pro- if a producer hasn't worked with me before, they're like, man, you're like you're in my ear a lot. You're asking for replays a lot. I'm like, well, I'm trying to show people what's happening, why it's happening, and then forecast and foreshadow what's next. And uh, you know, like, you know, your brain is working, has to work in real time, and then looking forward and then looking back. And meanwhile, you're trying to communicate what you're thinking, what you're seeing with a producer who has to do it to all the other cameramen and the tape guys as well. Uh, so I I think what, you, what you've nailed is that there is place in this space for real analysis that's just slightly slower than real time. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's fascinating. Like, I, I uh, so so often, like I remember watching uh, your breakdowns of Game 7 of the NBA Finals, and like you're watching the broadcast. And, like this is not a shot at the over-the-air broadcast, but it, and, and I think Jeff Van Gundy does a really good job of pointing out like all the different things that are going on. But even with that, like he's managing – like look, he's not the play-by-play. you got the play-by-play guy. And then you got Mark Jackson, and he's got to get in. And sometimes you want to blurt some stuff out about what really happened there, and it just doesn't have space – in a broadcast, it doesn't sound right. It's not. It's a. It's like an aside to the conversation. Uh, but you know, when you sub, what you know, if a guy's coming out, are you running a play for him right before he comes out? If a guy's gassed or guys in foul trouble, are you running an iso? Maybe not even to score a bucket. Like all these kind of little things. And you pointed out the different vantage point. I, I also think that something interesting. A lot of times, I see in a breakdown, you'll use, uh, you know, w- w- something where you can see all ten. You know, like a uh, whether it's a, a backboard cam. Uh, I my personal favorite is it's called the slash cam. That's the one at like the three quarter angle. You know, it really gives you the the, the feel of what's mm-hmm. going on on the floor from that kind of uh, three quarter angle of the floor. Anyway, um, I, I think there's space in broadcasting in big events for those types of images, those type of breakdowns. But in the meantime, while they're not doing it, I really think like. People like you do a great job of bringing a true sports discussion to the social media world.
0: Uh, well, thank you. I mean, uh, my my thing would be I would want a camera directly above the lane, like both lanes, looking straight down, just like the clipboard angle. That's what I would want to do. If I were a scout on an NBA team, That's that would be the only angle I'd ever okay, want so to like. Have like like a
1: drone like a yeah like
0: a, you know straight uh, like right above the top of the key almost so you're looking just like you would be looking down on, a, on, a, on a, when you're drawing the, on the board so you can now see everybody and there's nobody blocking anybody and you can you know it's just like the x's and o's you'd be drawing up to me that would be the the best one you just have two of those and then you can it. kind of click them together and why couldn't um, you do, why couldn't you do a drone camera I they mean, might. I, I, I well, Let's, let's find. I don't know. I mean, we, if we could, uh, we you know. I, I wish, I wish the NBA would do that and just have it mounted and like, you know, you could maybe like get that feed on online or something. Just all, like, you know, all the time on. Uh, that would be awesome. Maybe they already do that. For by the way, the sports view cameras might already. I doubt they're there, but they're they're around and they're somewhere around there. So I don't know. Yep. That, I think the future of the of the NBA or even college, probably on TV, will be that where you'll be able to control whatever angle you want to watch the the camera. I, from. I, I,
1: it's it's interesting because, you know, like in the NFL, you can get the uh, all 22 uh, and the NFL kind of works out to where, you know, it happens Sunday and then you can go and online you can, you can, you can, I think Tuesday, those guys, oh, guys really? that break down on, yeah, they can get the all 22. Oh. Maybe it's because there's such a volume of games you can't, but that would be, that would be, you know, to be kind of your own director. yeah um, And like, again, this is more kind of TV one-on-one, something I've learned like the 14 years in the business is. Uh, it's like, you don't understand, people don't understand what it's like to have a great director. Like when you have a really good director who understands you, knows what you're saying, can take you there. Cause what you're working is, you know, you have the, you have the talk back button and so everybody can hear you and then you have your over the air button. So, uh, a real, a, a, a a well-seasoned analyst who's been trained well before he talks about a certain play or a certain play he tells the producer who, you know, it opens it up to the director. Hey, show me a shot of LeBron, but give me that LeBron shot from the slash so I can show you how he helped defensively. Okay. And then you're like looking at the replay before they run it. Okay. wait, wait back a little bit further, back a little bit further. And then you have the time constraints of how quickly I can get the replay and how long it actually runs. Uh, but what you're saying is kind of be your own director, change the camera angles. Cause that's, that's the, that's the director's job. And I will tell you that, um, it's the, the better the game you watch, you can tell there's a better director because, or, and because you'll hear the analysts start to talk about something then all of a sudden what they're speaking about appears. And again, and then the really good analysts don't say, well, when you see here, they don't say, right. cause you don't have to, we already see it. Um, But it's a a fascinating idea of, one, being able to have the true X and O like it's a whiteboard, look down at all 10, whether it's a drone or a stationary camera, and then, two, be your own director so that you can move around and pick your own shot. Yeah. That's, that's and, interesting.
0: And by the way, I think TNT does something like that, where they'll have four angles that are, uh, you know, synced together, and you can kind of watch whatever you like from there. So they do do something, but again, it's only the, the TNT games, which is once a week. So, yeah, I think that's the future either way. But, you know, I, I, b- before you were talking about the differences between sort of 90s, you know, basketball a little bit and now, and I thought we could talk for a few minutes about that because I'm fascinated, you know, when I, I'm a little bit older than you, not much, but a little bit, but certainly, you know, being around clinics and, and high-level basketball in the 90s. Um, I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are, because I'm sure you're going around and seeing practices now, seeing trainers and how people are, are, are you know working on their games. Is there anything that jumps out in your mind that seems the
1: most radically different from back then to now? Well, the, the spacing, I think, is – is uh, um, it's interesting. So uh, I'll give you a little bit about my background. So my dad is from New York City. He's from the Bronx. Um, uh, he – uh, grew up in the Bronx and moved out to Long Island, and he was a, just a basketball fanatic. No basketball really in his background. Like his dad was an accountant, who became a car dealer, and um, so he went to Syracuse for a semester, and then Ohio. He went to Ohio State, where he ultimately graduated. He was a walk on on those great teams with John Havlicek and, oh, wow. and Bob Knight, and would never made the varsity, but it was a JV player and. Um, from there, he became a high school coach, and he was actually, he actually replaced Hubie Brown at Fairlawn High School, but he <laughs> used to, um, and he was head coach at like Death Valley High School for a year, and then he made his way ultimately to the college game. He was an assistant under Burt Kahn at Quinnipiac College, um, oh, Quinnipiac University now, and then from Quinnipiac, he went to Kansas State under Jack Hartman, from Kansas State to Creighton under Eddie Sutton, and then he became a head coach at Jacksonville, a head coach at UW-Milwaukee, uh, when Title IX was passed, he in Milwaukee decided to go D one to D three, so he went back to be an assistant. He was assistant under Tex winner, and that's when it took us out to California in 1981. They got fired in '84. He spent a year with Ralph Miller uh, oh. when they won the Pac ten 84 85 AC Green senior year, and then you know he toiled around in terms of uh, some minor league coaching, coaching NBA summer league, and he started um, AAU teams, which back then were travel teams. And then from that began a basketball academy. Ultimately, and a basketball academy started a placement service, and he actually acted as a uh, almost an agent for players. And like the parents would pay him to create a tape, create a highlight, evaluate their player, the kid as to what level the kid could play at. And then he'd call the coaches and he'd try and get the players a scholarship. And then in the, in the difference of him and his agent instead of the co- instead of the the universities uh, paying him. The parents would pay him because of the value of a scholarship. Like, hey, you can pay my dad a couple grand. Like the kids getting a college scholarship or even getting into a Division two, II, Division three school academically because of basketball, uh, it's incredibly valuable. So, um, he's when he started his career, like like you, he was going to all these kind of clinics, and he has got he has copious notes that I've read over over like Bob Knight's great clinics at at West Point, Ooh, and
0: really?
1: so. Yeah. And so he would, you know, and, and, um, my childhood, uh, like everybody was, like, uh, he was my travel team coach and in Orange County, like in order to get the best players, we had to go and pick up, uh, Adam Walton, Bill Walton's son from San Diego, or we'd have to go pick up J.R. Henderson, um, who lived in Bakersfield. So we needed dad halfway. And then we come to practice and then we go drop him off. We go to uh, La and pickup. So we we spent a lot of time in the car and just talking about ball. And so um, you asked about the differences. Uh, obviously, there's change in how you approach defense. Um, in that uh, teams, but but I think the the first thing and the most important thing is that spacing has changed. But it's interesting because the guy who is probably the furthest ahead of the curve. Gets the least amount of credit, and you you talk about triangle a lot of times, and you you point out how P- triangle is very much part of the NBA. <clears throat> what I think a lot of people don't know, and the story of the triangle has never been told, it was originally a triple post offense. But when you and I was in the Lakers uh, minicamps like three times, I played in their summer league, and so uh, I, I know the offense exceptionally well. But I also know how it's taught, and the the idea of it, it's not just triangulation. Yeah, the, the first the first uh, point about the triangle that's most important is always maintaining 15 to 18 foot spacing and it's taught in a way in which it's just embedded in your head and if you go and watch um, triangle teams or now the Knicks or previously the Lakers previously at the Bulls when you watch them stretch everybody's 15 to 18 feet apart when they, they start you actually start like it's like the baby crawling before you walk Texas a first practice in installing a triangle offense there's four lines across. Everybody is 18 feet from each other. Um, and the guy in you – know, like you walk. Just start walking. And then in 18 feet, then the next guy starts walking. Okay, Then the next time you're going up, you do that up and down the court. And then you do what he calls being spastic, which you just kind of loosen up your body. But the idea is like from that to cutting to moving to spacing, everything you do, unless you're going to split with a teammate or screen for a teammate – or you know the pinch post for the teammate. With that as the exception, you're always 15 to 18 feet from each other to create the proper spacing so that when help comes, there's the ability to find a teammate, and you don't have the ability for another teammate's man to intercept that pass. I think that's been uh, borrowed or even stolen and installed in every other type of thing we've done, and so Is health defense different? Yes. Are the movements that were on a basketball floor different? Yes. But the number one thing that's changed that's created all this stuff is more coaches have a appreciation for spacing and the spacing uh, of the triangle offense was kind of the first. And people have borrowed that idea and installed it in both their offenses and defensive schemes.
0: Love it. I mean, you know, I, I had forgotten that, yes, you do have that text Winter connection because, you know, I, I was a kid who, when I was coaching at, you know, in high school, we, were, we started to run the triangle. I just literally went to the summer league and when it was down in Long Beach still, yeah. and we just grabbed Tex. We, we were wearing coaching shirts, so it looked like we were official. We got on the floor, and uh, we grabbed him, and he ended up being just the nicest man to me and sort of a mentor to help me learn how to do it. Uh, you know, it's funny. I think that the, one of the keys here to successful offense these days is the ability to have your players sprint either across the court or from one spot to the next, whereas we got into a rut, it felt like where we are doing like in the pick and roll where guys would go to the corner and just stand there for 12, 13 seconds. And when you're watching the Warriors play, there's a lot of triangle going on there. And I think what what part of the genius was, was having the ability to have guys taken off for 10, 12 feet of sprinting before they catch the ball. And the funny thing now is that what, what people want to c- complain about the triangle is it's a little too slow. And there are a couple things. Like when that guard <laughs> goes to the corner and he runs in front of the wing to start the triangle, you know, that's just too slow. Like you can't, why are we waiting for the guard to kind of jog to the corner? So like I recognize there are some things that are have issues, but without question, and we've done these videos, uh, yeah, there's so much of that action that's so good. And I think part of it is this notion of what the new thing is, is attacking on the catch, which I kind of wanted to talk to you about real quick because – I feel like when we were growing up, triple threat was the thing. You Catch the ball, rip through. You kind of hold it. I remember at Wisconsin, I was a manager. They would teach you to catch the ball, rip through, wait for half a beat, and then try and shoot it. And I was like, it was the hardest shot in the in the in the in basketball because you haven't interrupted all the Who's momentum. The coach? What's that?
1: Who's the coach? Who's the coach? Uh,
0: Stu Stu Jackson. And then Stan Van Gundy was the assistant. Well, Sean Miller.
1: Well, well, let me let me. That's pretty good. That's a pretty damn good staff. Yeah. Um, uh well let me let, let's go back for a second you, you mentioned um pick and rolls and I, like okay so here's what's changed when 2000s when i i graduated and i immediately went and played in the usbl and it was a great league because you had almost everybody in the league was either a borderline pro or they had been a pro trying to get back in the league it was in may it was in june And you played, like, 35 games in, like, 42, 45 days. It was incredible. But more than anything, you were being integrated into NBA-style basketball, right? And so back then, if you ran a pick and roll, you almost always ran a pick and roll, two men on the side, everybody else on the opposite side, okay? So the number one change, I think, in basketball, and whether you want to say it's uh, uh, the triangle concept to it or just the idea, again, of spacing, but... The idea of rolling and replacing is 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 relatively new. The idea of always having a guy in the corner when you're running a pick and roll on the side. Like when I was in high school, we would run we ran secondary break, but most of our secondary break, I'd wave the guy through, and then me and a teammate, a guy named David Alizarian, who played at Notre Dame and at Pepperdine, like you put your two best players in pick and roll, you put everybody else on the other side, and then you kind of go to work, right? And you know where everybody else is, and whoever's man helps, you know, they're spacing so that they can get the ball on the skip. Um, that has changed. And so now, and like I'm coaching the Maccabi team, which is going to Israel next year. And my offensive belief is, uh, one, like you're almost always having three men on the side of the ball. And if you have two on the opposite side of the ball, well, now you have to kind of pick and roll away and you have to, the, the spacing is again, spacing concepts are different. So the, the first thing though, is the old school technique of two men on the side, pick and roll and everybody standing has gone away. Now I think that's, I think Mike D'Antoni probably gets, should get the most credit for it. Uh, he not only brought four out one in basketball, but he brought the off the ball movement off the pick and roll. Whereas in the past it was either get to corner and, and, spot up or, uh, as you like, again, when I was in college, you know, anybody, everybody had head tap or fist or whatever, end of shot clock, high ball screen. And whoever was on the wing, like, You almost, I never liked guys coming up behind me um, where you'd run a pick and roll. And if his man helps you hit in the corner, he hits a jump shot, right? Like, or if he's not a shooter, then he cuts the basket Him in the back door. You throw it to the rim. Like those days are kind of gone. There has to be much more intricate movements. Um, The second thing that's changed about the pick and roll is um, as defenses have started loading up on the ball and ball screen coverage has been better. Coaches have gotten smarter about, Hey, why don't we screen? the guy who's going to be the screener into the ball screen. Like, it's it sounds so easy, but it's really smart because it makes the defender who normally was able to hedge out hard, well, now he's got to first come off of the screen, trail his man, and now he's moving, and that may, puts a big man at a, at a steady disadvantage. So um, I think those two or three concepts have really changed. I think, again, the first part about it is that the spacing is much more emphasized in everything we do. Uh, But I I, and and a lot of people have trouble evolving to spacing now, which values the three point shot and values um, that that ball in player movement. But I also think it's it's important to note, as you pointed out, that the idea of pick and roll and just stand and wait for the ball like those days are over. And it's made basketball better, but also uh, very, very different from how you and I grew up watching it and learning it.
0: Absolutely. I mean, those are all fantastic points. It makes me excited to hear that you, you're seeing that as well. And um, I think the other thing um, is shorter, is shooting um, as well. I think on in an individual <laughs> basis, what I think is interesting is, so you were a point guard, and three-point shooting really wasn't your thing. Uh, you weren't six eight to see over the defense. So I'm kind of curious, um, how did you end up able to play such what a high I, what level?
1: I... Why
0: would I suck at shooting? Well, oh, A, well, we could talk about that too because that's an interesting thing because, uh, you know, let's just say usually people who look like you w- would be like the good shooters, right? The guys who are just crazy. Well, I get it. Yeah,
1: yeah. And so. Um, well, so there's a bunch to it. I mean, first I was, I was actually a really good shooter uh, in high school. I mean, I wouldn't have gotten recruited at the level I did unless I could shoot the basketball. I mean – Honestly, uh, I think it's like it's it's never just one thing. I mean, most of it was uh, almost like a stage fright, like a mental self confidence thing. Oh, really? And I, and I frankly didn't play. Uh, I I believe Eddie Sutton's a great coach, and he knew that I could take I could be his whipping boy. What I don't think he understood was how to coach my 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 self confidence as a shooter. Like my confidence would go away, so I just wouldn't shoot the basketball. Oh, wow! And. But I think also it was my, my body change. You know, when I, when I went to Notre Dame, I was 160 pounds. And I stayed back a year, so I was 19 years old as a freshman. Uh, and, you know, that was when people's first we first started using creatine. And I went from 160 to 177 before our first practice. And, like, even now, if you see, like, I have broad shoulders. I have big, strong shoulders. Um, so, if, for, first, if you go back, when I was a kid, I used to, like, tap the ball with my left thumb when I shot the ball. And so it had a side spin to it. And so my first two years of high school, first year of high school, uh, when I, when I played varsity, I never looked to shoot cause I was on a, a senior laden team. And then my sophomore year was like a working. I was working through kind of a true one hand jump shot. And then by my junior year, my senior year, I was a really good, uh, you know, come down the floor, stop, pop, shoot go into the ball screen, stop up, and I had deep, deep range on it.
0: Really? Okay. Uh,
1: so I, I would say what what changed was, I mean, first, when I went to Notre Dame, I played for John McLeod, who, um, you know, he was a pro-style coach. He didn't really understand the difference in spacing in college basketball. He, it was, um, I was also, like you know, he wasn't comfortable with fast break three-point jump shots or shake in place, up and rise and shoot, like, but wait, was, but were you
0: shooting three-point shots in pull-up on transition in high school? Yeah, of course. Wow, because yeah. like, so when did you graduate high school? What year?
1: Ninety-five.
0: Okay, wow, because because uh, I I feel like I hadn't seen much of that until later, but that's exciting to hear.
1: <laughs> no, I mean, like, look, I played for a guy. He's a tremendous junior college coach, uh, Andy Ground. He coached at Saddleback Junior College, and he was a young guy. And uh, like, look, this is the the trend. like we we were really well coached in high school, but also it was like twenty first century. Like we came down and. You know, in transition. I mean, he because that's he was a scoring point guard because he understood like, even though you could shoot an NBA depth three in high school, like because you have momentum, it's not nearly as hard a love, shot. At, love it. As off a yeah. screen. So, um, so I came from that to when I like at Notre Dame, where I remember like my first practice, I came down and I stopped and whoa, <laughs> like John McLeod almost like passed out because like, what are you what are you what are you doing? Like, well, I don't know, just playing. And like it literally like here like this is and and like I respect John McLeod the man. I think he was a good NBA coach, but he, he, he did not like like for example, he had a, a side pick and roll action with me and Pat Garrity And when he installed it, he ran it to my right hand. Well, most most jump shooting point guards shoot the ball better out of their left hand, right? Because you don't over rotate. Um, and I had kind of explained that to Fran McCaffrey, who's my assistant coach, and it literally took them until the end of the season to flip it and run it on the right side of the court to come to my left hand. So it's like, so so they're like, why don't you ever shoot it off the pick and roll? Like, I'm not really good shooting off the pick and roll going right. And my body had changed. Uh, so I shot like, I don't know, like 26% from, th- from three. And really what, what happened was, in addition to my body probably being tight and not adjusting to... Uh, you know, getting too caught up in the weight room instead of shooting jump shots. And remember, this is before everybody had the gun where, you know, um, where you could just go and get a thousand shots in the practice gym now, like you can now. You, you couldn't do that then. You had to have a manager for easier. You had to shoot yourself. Um, so in addition to not having great self-confidence, probably not working as much as I could have, um, and having a coach who didn't embrace the style of shooting You know, that I was I mean, we ran what was called a two side motion, which nobody runs. Basically you have kind of blocker mover, only I was like a ball rotation guy. Like I'd pass and fake like I was screen away and come back and catch it and pass. And then he's like, When you get it, then you can break down the defense. Like, well, yeah, but there's two posts there and there's not like really space there and there's no ball screen there. Like, let me move a little bit. And your man's not having to move much at all. Right. And again, like he didn't that wasn't I, I didn't think he was not a good offensive he was just not a good offensive coach for my style of basketball, um, and and we were at a at a substantial disadvantage because we didn't have as good a personnel as the Big East. Which that year, the fourth best team in the Big East was Syracuse, and they went to the national championship game. And Iverson's at Georgetown, and Kerry Kittles was at Nova. They were probably the, they were the second best team, and then you know UConn at Ray Allen and Deron Sheffer. and like so, we're at a we're at a style disadvantage for me. We're at a athletic disadvantage in comparison to our competition. Our coach really had NBA concepts and NBA ideas that didn't fit with college basketball. Uh, So there's a lot of stuff going on there. Uh, And the last part was, so I was always a money free throw shooter. Like I was always like the guy, like hold the ball, foul me, make a couple free throws, run down the court. And uh, I started to get the yips a little bit at the end of high school, but not bad. I mean, I was like high 70s, but really good at the end of games. And so our first first Big East game in Notre Dame and Rutgers history was at the Rack at Rutgers. And we had a 14 or 17-point lead. I think it was a 14-point lead. We ended up losing in overtime. Uh, But somewhere in the process of losing the game, I got fouled. And I step up the free throw line And the first one I shoot, I airball. And the second one I shoot, I make it. Run down the court. I didn't think anything of it. Like, literally click-delete. And so that we get back to campus, and everybody else is on break, and – the one thing about John McCloud, which is like the very much the pro mentality was he would never embarrass you in front of your teammates. So, uh, but the day after the game, he'd call you and have you come into his office. So, uh, he has the, uh, uh, he has the secretary call me and say, come down to my office. So I go to his office and I'm like, now I'm starting, I'm working on being the starting point guard. Like I didn't start the first floor games, none of it, but I knew I was going to start. And so he, um, He throws on the tape of the game. I'm like, all right, cool, what are we watching? You know? And it's my free throws. Like, what do you think what happened here? And I was like, I don't know, coach. And he goes, I don't know, I just I choked it. What do you mean you choked it? So we go from there to the gym, and for an hour, my coach, and John McLeod never played basketball. Now, keep in mind his shot, his shooting guru was Denny Price, it's Mark and Brent Price's dad, who I worked extensively with. But so Denny Price kind of relayed to him on the phone what's going on with my shot and what I should do. And he's like, you need to be like Walter Davis, like a gunslinger and get those elbows in and get the ball in front. And I'm like shooting the ball, like 1960s style with left hand in front. And that way it gets completely out of the basketball. And uh, now I, now I do have a problem with, with, with shooting and, and my entire approach to, he's got one foot in front of the other shooting free throws. And I think you combine all of that. And now I was, I was completely screwed up. Now I I mentioned all this and realized I had a year to work out the kinks when I went to junior college um, and I left Notre Dame and I was, uh, I got to, I played with the junior college and helped coach with the junior college, but didn't actually play a game. So I didn't lose a year of eligibility. And then, you know, I got to Oklahoma state and I'm kind of a people pleaser. And so I remember like the first bunch of games, like I was just trying to dime everybody up to show everybody that I could really pass. And then by the time you get around to people adjusting, uh, I, I never was really able to conquer the demons of just stepping up and making shots again until I was out of college. And even then, it took a coach either playing for my dad or playing for a guy named Maz Track in the uh, ABA 2000. And Maz actually would take me out of the game if I would turn down an open shot. And that kind of like clicked the engine back to making shots. So anyway, to answer your question, how do you play when you, without a jump shot? It's interesting. Like, I actually look at that as a source of pride. Like, it's really hard for me to watch myself play in college where guys are not guarding me. I'm like, dude, that's embarrassing. But I must have brought some other intrinsic value to my teams in that I played for a Hall of Fame coach. who won a lot of games at Oklahoma State and we were clearly better when I was on the floor. Uh, but I, I lost my self-confidence and I didn't have coaches that knew how to coach my particular kind of lack of self-confidence and self-awareness on a basketball floor right
0: and i think the lesson learned is never try and like adjust mechanics after the season has started i think that would be the thing that i'm listening to you say uh the, the fact that he'd get on the free throw line with you and be going over stuff and trying to change your mechanics that was in the, that was after the season started right
1: yeah it was in the middle of the season yeah, yeah so that, that, that's a <clears> huge throat> throat> red flag. More, than it, more than more than anything yeah, i think you have to it's jimmy johnson says that he's like I coach all I used to coach all my players the same different because they're all different right so what you have to do is you have to invest in people and understand like, all right is this the type of kid who if I say something about a shot, it doesn't matter like I play with a guy named Joe Atkins at Oklahoma State and like you can tell him it's a bad shot, you can tell him whenever like Joe had the internal self confidence like I don't give a goddamn what you say I'm gonna shoot it my way and play my way right and you just kind of have to temper that uh, whereas with me, like I would overreact i'm, I'm too coachable. Like if you tell me, uh, you know, like I I hate the old coaching concept, like never leave your feet when you pass. Like, uh, okay, well, I know what I'm doing when I pass. Like, you know, but with shooting, if you say something about my shot, like now I'm thinking about like, damn, um, I'm always trying to take the right shot. And sometimes, sometimes you have to take a contested shot. Sometimes you just do. So um, I, I think you have to know your players. And I think that there wasn't enough Investment into how do we get the, the most out of him instead I think sometimes coaches worry about coaching their team instead of coaching their players which ends up coaching their team well
0: very well said and Doug I now need to run and take my kids to school but I cannot thank you enough we should do this again I mean this is a dangerous conversation that can go on for another four hours in my mind
1: so we should do it again all right so here's what you do um send me up time and you like we'll pick like one topic and we'll just like chop it up over the over the basketball topic because i'm fascinated by it
0: oh absolutely done we'll do that we'll do it soon let's do it and uh don't forget sports fans at beatball breakdown not a channel we're a conversation are you in are you in doug
1: i'm in all in